Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Miai, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. everyone welcome to the art grind podcast i'm here with dina brodsky and the exquisite artist drawer extraordinaire colleen barry is uh our guest today so uh colleen nice to see you how you doing great to see you thanks for having me on you guys oh my god colleen thank you so much for uh partially giving giving us the excuse to Hang, hang out together as everyone is starting to hang out less and less virtually yes <laughs> less and less in person <laughs> i love it i'm so happy to be here so thanks yeah we're happy to have you so uh tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you got involved in art okay um well i grew up here in new york city um and i grew up on the, so on the lower east side uh right on the fdr drive uh, at this, this it was, it's like a, a community of big buildings, um, kind of like a private community um, called Waterside Plaza. Okay. Right on the river. Yes, we had a swimming pool and it was kind of like a gated community for middle income families, very much like Peter Cooper and Stytown. Um, and I grew up there for, yeah, my whole, my whole life um, until I was ready to move out of the house. Um, and, uh, Art Students League. I found uh, the Art Students League when I was fourteen. Oh wow! And um, and I took a, a, my first drawing class there um, with Peter Cox. Actually, it was in a net. Peter is amazing. He's one of my fa- he well passed away, but one of my yes. favorite teachers slash artists ever. I was That's so great. intimidated by him. He was like the coolest, coolest guy. He'd always be smoking outside and, you know, I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 and I, I just took the Saturday anatomy class. What made you want to do that? So when I was 13, I was mostly interested in boys and um, collecting dried flowers, right? <laughs> um, whereas you were like, let me take an artistic anatomy class. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I was always drawing portraits in my room from like posters. Jim Morrison, Marilyn Monroe, Andy Warhol, like constantly, oh, like the um, Beatles. One of their albums had like four Andy Warhol-esque renditions oh. of each Beatle. Meet I forget the Beatles. Which album it is. Yeah, Meet the Beatles. And yeah. I copied each of those faces in two tones. And um, anyway, I just felt like I really sucked at drawing and it frustrated me. So I was like, what should I do? And my, I was always getting into trouble like on the weekends. So my mom was like, go take a, a drawing class. So I started doing that, and, and it was around that same time that I met Sam Adequay through a boyfriend, a high school boyfriend. Um, so it was weird, it was serendipitous that when I had just started taking that Saturday class at the league, I started to hang out with this, this guy in my class. Well, actually, he was at my school, but he was two grades above me. And, um, and he introduced me to Sam Adequay, and, um, and then Sam said, I'd like to paint you. So I went down to Sam's studio um, down in Union Square, where, where it still is now, and um, I got to see his situation there, and like get, I got like you know access to like a real artist's like sphere, 
and I posed for him and then he was like, well, listen, if you want to learn to paint, why don't you come with me on Saturdays in my studio and I'll, and I'll teach you how to paint. So that started. So same with actually, wow. our, yeah, same with our previous guest. And I, I actually, so, um, you know, C Colleen introduced me to Sam during one of the brief moments this year when you were allowed mm -hmm. to see people in yes. real life. And mm -hmm. he was completely amazing. But I saw that painting of you in, in a studio and I was like, oh my God, is, yes. that, the, is that the little Colleen? <laughs> so how, how, how old were you when this happened? I was 14. Um, I, yeah, I was 14 and I, I decided, okay, I was going to just dedicate myself on the weekends and nights after school because Sam taught at the National Academy of Design, which was on 89th and 5th, right? 89th Street and 5th Avenue. I went to school on 89th and Central Park West. So I could actually walk across the park to go and take class, evening classes with him. Oh, cool. Wow. So Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights, I went from high school to Sam's class at the National Academy. And then on the weekends, painted still lifes with Sam, <clears throat> landscape painting out in the um, Central Park or whatever. And I basically did that throughout all of my four years of high school. And then <clears throat> maybe three or four years when I got out of high school, because then I wow. studied full time. So it was yeah, like eight years of study with just one teacher. And he taught me so much about history about what's good painting um he had me on a regiment of going to the met and uh, i would just so he he just i was just fully entrenched in wow. sam's um and, mentorship and what, was, what was the rest of your life like at the time like you know were, were you still so um uh, but, but for for some reason every person i know who's just you know who has this incredible classical mm -hmm. education uh some of them have had the most rebellious kind of childhood slash teenage yes. slash early life and i'm wondering if that's true for you yeah how i don't know how you know that but maybe because, it's uh, no because it's everyone uh, it be, must be, be. be because all of these classically trained you know, you know you've trained it artists has. spent years mastering cast drawings yeah. we're all kind of some of the bigger troublemakers and adventurers and mm -hmm. You know, mm. basically, if you want a crazy story, uh, yes. you know, you, I, I feel like you approach someone who came out of like the Florence Academy or GCA. You don't go for the, right, right, right. You know, the person who's now getting written up as like the voice of our, our, totally. our, our times in the New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Well, I, I, have, I, I have yet to figure out why that is. By the I, way, same but, here, same here. I don't know, but I did have a very tumultuous um, high school uh, just experience, um, and the. Um, the boyfriend who introduced me to Sam went on to create, he was the creator of the Strokes band. He's Julian Casablancas. Oh, so, right. okay. That <laughs> was, yeah, that was you're, something You're that, dating Julian Casablancas? <laughs> yes. For, for pretty much as long as I had my mentorship with Sam, Julian and I were a couple throughout all of my high school years. And um, he, uh, he and I watched his success flower. And, and it went up to a climax with his first album, of course, Is This It? Um, and I got to go on tour with them um, here and there. And yeah, just to see his success, but also think about my painting. Uh, you know, um, those two things did have collide at the same time. Um, mm. But there was, of course, partying and a lot of, lot of drugs and a lot of distractions and a lot of just crazy, crazy living, but still trying to... St to stay anchored as an artist myself um 
so that was my 20s. My, my teenage years and my 20s was pretty much Julian, Sam, and trying to get through high school and trying to just figure out how to paint. That was basically it. And just living in New York, you know. Wow. That's awesome. That's a crazy story. But I have to say, Julian's success in hindsight now um, is helped me to understand something about being an artist, which was that, you know, if you really want something, you just have to commit to, to, to what it is that you want. And, and he, he was very committed to his music and, and really, really, really pushed for excellence in every way that he could um, with the strokes. And, um, and I think that one of the, the, the biggest things that I took away from that experience was that I had to commit 100% to painting. So that was, that was the lesson there. And, and actually, how was he connected to Sam? Because I know that they're, you know, I know they've remained friends and I know that they, you know, like... Well, Sam's like a, a mentor to, to Julian. So Sam, who just seemed like kind of a, a like a really incredible guy. Um, yeah. He, he said that he mentioned, you know, he, he mentored musicians and artists. And yes, he was Julian's mentor and he knew Julian um, was, you know, in high school uh, because we went to the same high school. He was a very, very, very wild kid. Very wild. And he, yeah, so Sam knew that Julian needed someone that could direct that, you know, direct him in the right way. So um, they were very close and very bonded. So oh. when I met Julian, Julian was like, you, you know, you love art. You've got to meet Sam. Like this guy is, he's, he'll show you the way. <laughs> he's the guru, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what I got from talking to him. Like he was, I say he seemed uh, very like enlightened, very in touch with a, a higher purpose that, that is always eludes me and everything I do a higher purpose. <laughs> and you know, the, the alternative road, you know, the alternative road, cause I took an alternative road and I had to actually make that decision very clearly. When I was 21, I graduated, I graduated from high school when I was in around 2021, I started applying to colleges. I applied to Parsons and Pratt. I got into Pratt. I, I got a scholarship and I actually just turned it down at the last minute. I turned it down um, for better or for worse. I said, I'm going to take the alternative road. I'm just going to do it. And, and I'm going to try the hardest that I can to try to, you know, walk a different path. Sam showed me the way, you know. Well, what were you, like, were you, what were you chasing? Was it, because I guess skill, technique, fame, whatever, it comes in all different ways. Like, what did you want when you, when you turned down Pratt and where did you go? That's a great question. I, um, I, had, got, I had some interviews with teachers, faculty members at Pratt and Cooper Union who had looked at my work and they said, they already were pretty straightforward with me. They, they said, listen, you're already really good at drawing. If you want to get better at drawing, you, you just shouldn't come to these schools. Um, <laughs> you're already better draftsman, and I wasn't very good, but they said, you're already a better draftsman than most of the faculty members here. Like, um, which, they which, told which, me, which you probably were, on, on, honestly. <laughs> I, and I was shocked to hear it, but then they, they really did say, if you're, it, this is definitely more concept-based, more um, social issues, and, and a lot more of like, um, just a different pedagogy, basically. And I had to decide how much I wanted to learn the tech, the technical part of um, traditional oil painting, you know. 
And with, with what like goal in mind, was it to entertain yourself? Was it to sell work? Was it to, um, be, be like a teacher? Like what goal was in mind with, with that? Or, or just to master, yeah. a dis- master a discipline. I think it, for me, it, originally it was just to master a discipline and have a conversation about the past that wasn't a critique of the past. Hmm. That's, that was something really, that was really important to me at a very young age was that I wanted to appreciate Western painting, not from a, criti- a critical standpoint, but from just pure admiration. That, that was something I, I wanted to in my naive or or very childish, childlike mind. And, and, and so that was something that I wanted to be an incubate. I wanted to be incubated in, in that. Um, so I could really love it and, and absorb it. Um, but I didn't really know exactly what was going to happen, where I was going to use those tools, you know? So mm-hmm. I'm kind of, a, I'm kind of along for the ride in my, <laughs> in my own career. Like I don't really know where this is going still. <laughs> I first found, uh, I first, I first discovered your work when I was probably in my late twenties and, um, as a, as a girl woman, you know, the artist that showed it to me, she said, you know, you have to see Colleen's work. She's a master. She can do anything. And I saw your work and I was like, oh my God, she is a master. She can do anything. And I actually assumed that because you were so good, you were much older. Mm. Um, I had no idea that we were the same age. And I was like, oh my God, I just have to study and, uh, you know, master my own discipline. And maybe one day I'm going to get as good as this. Uh, but actually you were as good at this. So you must've also been in your late twenties. Um, the, uh, <laughs> so you must've been very, very good. Um, kind of very early on. I feel, well, I lament that my, my twenties, my 10 years, 10 years of from 21 to 31, let's just say I, I completely gave myself to learning. Um, and I look back and I think, Oh my God, you were so young. Why didn't you like, express yourself or do something bold or do something different like come on it was just so much like that martyrdom spirit of of just constantly like pulling back the rubber band my husband will he, he has this amazing analogy of an artist um being inside this rubber band and you know when you pull back the rubber band it smacks you it really it really hurts but the farther you pull it back the harder it's gonna like throw right so what an artist, I feel like my study, like I was in that little rubber band and I was being pulled back and 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 back, and back for like 10 years, 15 years. Finally, we, I went to Europe and I got to see great painting and really copy great painting. Now I feel like I'm allowing that rubber band to actually just go, just throw me wherever I'm going to go. That's why I'm making bigger paintings now. I'm definitely opening the door to so much more intuition than I ever, ever did. Um, I'm allowing, just trusting that I I got what I needed and I'm just going to flow now. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. So why, why do I, I spent my twenties in basically the exact way that you spent your twenties is that, um, and in retrospect, why did I do that? I would wake up in the morning mm-hmm. and I'd wake up at like five or six. So I could paint for five or six hours before going into whatever day job that, you know, me and Marshall actually shared the where, where you could go in, you know, go in at like noon. Um, and I could have gone to more museums or gone to Central Park to draw or any of these things, but I just kind of chose 
not to, because, you know, like, like, like maybe we were also driven to either learn or make work or make a body of work. But in retrospect, I, I actually don't understand why I spent my twenties the way I did. I'm not unhappy. I did it. Yeah. Um, I that, um, but, but, but I, <laughs> but I also like what you're describing is very, very familiar. And the rubber band analogy is actually kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I credit Will for that. He okay. said that the other night and I said, Oh no, I'm going to use that probably at some point. Uh, good. You can use it. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I, I actually, um, I met you many years after hearing your, mm -hmm. your name for the first time. And, um, I, you know, met you on, the, was it the Long Island city waterfront? Uh, yes, when it turned sure out that we'd been living a few minutes away from each other for years. And um, Crazy, it was yeah. my last month in New York and we both had tiny babies strapped to us. And one of my other regrets in life is not having met you earlier when we could have actually hung out. But, and uh, had play dates with our kids. Yes, that I, been amazing. I, I know and complained about parenthood. But <laughs> what, what happened in Boeing? Because there was, you know, there must have been a road between Colleen who is partying with the strokes uh, while also learning how to paint all day long and pulling back the rubber band as, as, as far as she can to, mm. the, you know, to Colleen drawn director at GCA experimenting with intuitive painting with a baby mm -hmm. strapped to her chest. <laughs> can you just take, take us through it just a little bit? I, I know it's hard to condense into a podcast. Yeah. Well, I would say that when I, I guess I was probably, um, 24 when I started making paintings for galleries in New York, still lifes in particular, um, Hirsch and Adler and Frost and Reed. There were a lot of like galleries on Madison Avenue, um, that had little shops. Actually, they were like shop galleries. There's like a, like a, like a window to the street and you could just walk right in. Um, and I decided, okay, I'm going to start to entertain making paintings for galleries. So I was with a gallery for a while, Frost and Reed, and we had two shows and I was selling still lifes. Then I saw Jacob Collins's work because he actually, he lived maybe three blocks away from Frost and Reed. And I, I through our, for artist friends, I found out there was this little secret atelier called the Water <laughs> Street Atelier. <laughs> and Michael Grimaldi had learned how to paint Jacob and I had the rumor mill I, and I was very, very, very tempted. But then I thought, oh my God, you just spent all this time like studying. You're going to study more? And then my dad was retiring from his painting business. He paints apartments up on Park, Park Avenue and hangs wallpaper. He offered me his business around that same time because he said, listen, I'm, I'm out. Do you want the business? And I had this crossroads where I could take my dad's business or I'd go study with Jacob Collins. <laughs> So I took the Jacob Collins road and I just decided I'm going to put in hundred percent to figure out fig painting because I knew how to paint still lifes, but I really wanted to paint. I just felt like looking at the, um, just the painting that I liked, I was like, gosh, I would like to be able to do, do this with, in a commanding way. And I'd seen Jenny Savile's work and I was like, oh my God, like if you can paint the figure like that, like this is the competition. Holy smoke. This is crazy. So um, I went full force into the studio, I applied, and there was only, I don't know, 10 or 15 students in his basement at that time on 69th Street. Um, and then Water Street eventually turned into GCA, which it is where, uh, well, actually that GC, the Grand Central um, Academy was on 42nd Street, uh, no, 44th Street, 
um, that was maybe, I don't know how many years they were there, maybe five years there. And then they moved to Long Island City where they are now. So I studied with Jacob for, um, until I was like 31. And I met Will. Will won the Alma Shapiro Award. We both went to Europe for a year. And when I came back, I guess with the work that I had made in Europe, which was basically all knockoff, uh, not knockoff, they were originals, but they were so, they were these Michelangelo-esque drawings that I'd made. They were original drawings, but they were done in the style of Michelangelo. <laughs> I think Jacob really liked them. So he hired me as the director. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it was just on those drawings, but I, the flavor of the work, I, maybe it had the weight of Renaissance draftsmanship in it. And it was, it was, and then I started the structure class where there was a competition, you know, this, the structure pre-class that I teach now currently is a competition among students. Um, and it's a drawing competition every month. So I think with all of that, he said, okay, why don't you direct the, the drawing program? So I said, all right, let's try this. And, um, and I'm still there today. And what do you do? What do you do as the draw? Are you there every day? Are you making no? Um, a little bit of curriculum, but pretty much there just twice a week. I teach my structure free class, and then I teach first years. I demo a lot. You know, okay, yeah, it's mostly demoing, motivational talk, speaking to students <laughs> to keep their energy up, Sh sharing, just sharing a lot. Be, and just being there and whatever the admin needs me to do, I'm just there to help them when they need me. It's also a really good class because out of all the work at GCA, like I'm there once a month to take some photos. And I feel like out of all the work that comes out of GCA, the stuff that's coming out of your structural drawing class is kind of the strongest. And it's where, and I don't know how, you know, what the exact method is you're teaching, but it feels like that's where they're kind of developing their own hand. Uh, you know, much, much more than they are doing, you know, like, like nothing. I mean, I admire the 80 hour cast drawing as much as anyone. Yes, of course. <laughs> but I feel like your class is where they go to kind of take those skills somewhere else. Yeah. You know, the class is actually geared towards third and fourth year students. So you're supposed to only be able to take it if you're in your last two years at the, as a student. So it's, it's fourth, third and fourth year students. So they're already pretty, they've done cast drawing. They're already pretty well equipped with modeling and they've done a lot of block-in. So now the structure pre-class is allowing them to just go full rain ahead and just try to basically draw their ass off quickly and compete with each other for $500 every month. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So, so <laughs> if, if what, what wins you the $500? Is it like a drawing or just... There's a criteria, like six point criteria that I wrote out that um, if the drawing hits all those six marks, bam, you got a winner. Huh. And yeah, and uh, it helps the students' morale and also helps them a little with a little cash in their pocket, you know? <laughs> $500. Students, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, $500 can't get you very far today in this world, but hey, it's something. Better than nothing, right? Better than nothing. You know what? It's a, uh, it, it gets you, I mean, $500 is art supplies for like a year. It's not nothing. Sure I know. So, so by the way, can you talk about that year that you spent in Europe making Michelangelo drawings? Where were you? Like, like, you know, where did you go? Was that an adventure or was that sort of more of the rubber band getting pulled back just in a different location? 
Yeah, I think it was it was more of the rubber band getting pushed back, but I um, I wanted to figure out how to layer a painting. That was something that I, I really wanted to learn because I'd only really known painting as through an impressionist lens, which was maybe one layer of paint, maybe one or two. But I'm like, no, and I, when I see old master paintings like a Van Eyck or, you know, Holbein um, or Rembrandt, you know, not all Rembrandts are painted in many, many layers, but you can see that there's this like process of building up layers that I thought, okay, I'd love to learn that. Um, so I did grisaille painting, um, like I, co I copied Caravaggio in particular to figure out, I think it was Caravaggio and Ribera. Those are the two main influences on my work when I was copying at the, uh, the Louvre and the, um, the churches in Rome, one of the churches in Rome, forgetting the name. Um, so yeah, it was about, I really just wanted to learn how to layer a painting. That was for the painting end was how to layer a painting from a grisaille to color. And then from the drawing aspect, I wanted to understand how to build an anatomical understanding in my mind through looking at Michelangelo's sculptures and his mark making, and then be able to hire a model at my studio um, or wherever and be able to just tune in like a radio dial, like just tune in to that older uh, language of drawing. It's, which is aesthetics essentially, right? And did you, did, did you feel like that language was something that you needed to learn how to speak um, in order to make kind of, you, you know, your 21st century work? Definitely. Because now that I'm looser and my work's still figurative and I'm doing more monumental scale figures, I haven't abandoned the figure. Um, but the way that I'm flowing with the paint reminds me so much of so much of how I drew and learned to draw from, from those high Renaissance masters. Pontormo and, and Michelangelo in particular. So although I'm painting now, um, it feels very connected to what I learned, the mark making I learned from those, those drawings and from copying the David and doing all of that. So I, I loved your old work. Like I loved your, you know, like, like, and I don't like all classically trained drawing, but yours specifically, <laughs> you, you know, yours always had its own voice. Mm. And I love your new work too, which is actually, which is based on what you, it's, it's almost like, yeah, you learned how to speak, speak the language and now you're writing your own book. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes. Is that, is that what it feels, and, and your own book can go any direction you choose, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. And I, and this actually brings motherhood back into the conversation um, in that I don't really think I got to a place of confidence as a painter until I had a baby. Like, I don't know what happened in terms of like maybe a paradigm shift or something like that, but I was not confident as a, as, as a painter, as a draftsman, as someone who had something to say for my whole twenties and probably my whole early thirties. Then I got pregnant at 35 and I, um, something just snapped in my brain. And what snapped was that Colleen, your life, just as your life and your experiences are enough for art. That's it. Like, I don't have to explain someone else's experience in my art. I don't have to explain something historical. I don't have to critique anything. Just my experience alone is enough for art is enough. So that was, that was the motherhood thing that I said, I, I am allowed to actually just paint my kid. 
I'm allowed to paint me and my kid. I'm allowed to paint this weird figure blob and actually say that that represents something that I feel. And that, that was the paradigm shift right there. <laughs> You know, it's actually really inspirational to hear you say that because I feel like I actually lost my face in myself as, as an artist when 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 I when I became a parent. <laughs> uh, but 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 it, you know, so I might have lost face, but I, I what I gained was just yes. deep, deep appreciation for every moment I have to do this crazy impractical thing like you know just um just just spending time by yourself putting you know paint a canvas or it feels like insanity it feels like how could i be doing this like like how can this be my life yeah Uh, and 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 how am i allowing myself to just sit here and paint you know what (laughs) uh no how is life allowing me right here and paint even though it's much less time than i used to spend sitting here you know i know which used to be like 12 hours a day when i could yes and the gratitude part like once i became a parent i realized whoa like when i paint i'm really grateful to paint you know holy shit because without that tough yeah and and actually be so because i feel like a lot of artists choose not to have kids for various reasons um uh, or you know like like at least most of my artist friends don't seem to mm-hmm. um so i've always wanted to ask someone with with kids about the same you know the same age as mine how like how do, how does it affect everything your time you're you're married to another painter mm-hmm. um you know like like both of you want to paint someone has to say you know has yeah. to do child bedtime all the time how does all of that work oh my gosh it's it's pretty crazy i, I mean i would say that it's definitely took years to learn and now i'm four years in my, my older daughter's four years old i'm four years into having more experience about how to juggle like how much time can i pay a babysitter how much time do i sacrifice um my painting what where, what i could be painting just to help be with you know just to be with my children um and then how to factor in um my my partner who was also an artist and that he gets enough time to paint so it's definitely like a scheduling uh not a problem but you have to like schedule it right yeah i feel like it's all scheduling for me so i've divided it up pretty easily um where half my week is at gca and half of my my the five-day weekday so half at gca half at my studio and then i'm home on the weekends with the girls so it's actually a four-day week two days at gca two days at my studio Monday, um, yeah, was it Sunday, Monday, and Saturday, I'm home with the kids. Sorry, that sounds confusing. No, no. <laughs> Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Yeah, so three days with kids, four days at work. It's funny, I, I try to divide the week yeah. into things that I need to do to make money, uh, things that um, I, I want to paint, and then the kids, I mean, I don't know about you, but during the pandemic, they were also just home all the time. So oh, yeah. it wasn't like dividing the week, it was like, how many things can you do at the same time without going completely bonkers? <laughs> yes, for sure. I know, and I, and I work on commissions too, um, when I can. So when I'm here at the studio, I'll be doing a mixture of commissions, large paintings for the pop-up show, small paintings for small sales, like pot boilers, I call them pot boilers, <laughs> like paintings under, under, you know, 7K or 5K, you know. <clears throat> um, and then 
two days doing the GCA directorship, which is my half my income, basically. I, I want to get back to you a little bit about what you were saying about um, having, when you had the, you, you found freedom after having kids and that process and that you working is valid enough. And I think that's something that gets lost to a lot of our audience and more like technical based and stuff where mm. they feel, a, a lot of people just don't have resources. You know, it's a privilege like most of us did to be able to study for like 10 years in these things. Mm. And I feel, I worry about some of those people who feel like they're working jobs and they just don't have the time and like yes. in some of these rooms they're seen as less valid because they didn't quite get as much technique because of time available to them yes and I love what you said that just your your expression is all that you need to be an, an artist mm -hmm. you know yeah for sure that was super liberating because it just got completely detached from what I thought I was supposed to have gained or or what I you know, with technique, it's, it's so hard because we're so, we're so, I, I feel like we're so hard on ourselves thinking it's never enough. I could be better or I could have learned this better. And it, there's all this just insecurities about like the way we make marks, you know, or the way that we understand something. But, but, yeah, but you know, then there's the rest of the art world, which wasn't trained at, you know, GCA or, right. the, the, you know, or, just, or the Academy or the Art Students League to whom small. the conversation might be like, what? what? Like, who, who even needs these skills? <laughs> I know. It's so true. It's so true. So it's probably a very niche, niche community that would even care about that type of thing. Um, but yeah, yes, but it's ours, right? Oh, just, but I will just, say... Just because it's a niche doesn't yeah. mean it's not our life. <laughs> Well, I will say one thing, and for if and if for any listeners that would care to know, I came out of my ten years of tutelage with of three different artists, but I came out with no debt. Mm. I paid for the, I paid for the whole thing myself. Yes. Um, well, because you didn't go to an expensive, you know, you didn't go to an expensive, expensive accredited yes. school. And because schools, like, and this is actually something you're right, a, a lot of people don't know, but mm. the Art Students League, GCA, they are so much cheaper. So than much cheaper. I was able to bartend, cater, sell paintings when I could. Um, gosh, I did so many different random things just to, to make the tuition and a really cheap rent. I found like pretty pretty gross dives to live in <laughs> those years. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but, you know, like real, real cheap overhead. And then, um, and I was reading Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert last year. Um, do you know that book? Um, I know Elizabeth Gilbert. Know she's her. actually, she's friends, you know, she's friends with, what's her name, Wade Schumann? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, or she's really close oh, to him. Man. Well, <laughs> she has a great story and she talks a lot about her artistic path. Um, in uh, Big Magic, and she said in one of the chapters she was recommending artists be very careful about getting themselves in astronomical debt because of the the weight that it carries on our shoulders. There's already so much weight as an artist just to make paintings, then to think of oh, how am I going to pay back you know 100k, 200k. So it's it's. I, I yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I think like if I had that added pressure on me, I mean, I, I 
nannied throughout all of my figured out how to do nanny work to fit it in this schedule to go to as much classes as I could mm -hmm. like you cheap rent and places and if I was racking up significant debt while I did that I think uh, it would have crumbled me you know there's no I know I hear you <laughs> I really hear you so I I don't know for better or for worse but then people would say oh but look you you didn't pay you got to pay to play you don't have access to uh Zwarner. Look, you didn't go to Yale. You don't have that thing, that that uh, that uh, label, or whatever it is, or or that fine education. So there, it comes with a price. We just have to decide on what we're willing to pay for whatever we. You know, want. you know what though? I think that's changing because there's so much talk about uh, patriarchy and these things, mm -hmm. and I think people are understanding that expensive education is just another form of sorting people and patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And I definitely Absolutely. think that label is changing big time. I like, think so too, Marshall. I feel that there's a new, especially with COVID, something is probably gonna change pretty soon. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I also like keep in mind that most people who went to Yale, you know, maybe two of them will end up at David Thorner or will yes. end up at, you know, Very whatever, but, but most of them actually won't. Most of them will end up teaching and they will actually end up perpetuating the kind of education that they've received. Some of them will become mm. gate, gatekeepers where, where they, you know, and, and as all gatekeepers, I think yep. people are likely to give the grants or the scholarships or the shows to people like themselves. So they'll kind of perpetuate the kind of art that they've been taught to create Absolutely. but most of them won't have this fancy career you know like no. like, like career Such anyway a margin so yeah so, so so a lot of people pay the price and still don't you know like well but also i mean yeah. it brings up a good topic because like we all similar did similar things the three of us here and i'm sure 99 percent of the people you did it with are no longer doing it and it's mm -hmm. like for people like us it felt like in the late 2000s, there was just like everybody moved and and there was a few that hung on with various teaching jobs and were lucky enough to sell every now and again. And it was just like this weird, uh, where do we fit? I know. <laughs> like, it's so true. <laughs> There's a lot of question marks there. Um, and, and it's weird. I kind of like living in a place where you don't know exactly what the answer is. Um, that you feel like I'm creating something and there, there's a place for it somewhere. I just don't know exactly where it's meant, what it's meant, you know, where it's meant to go or who it's meant for. Um, I'm saying just in creating your, of course, your paintings, but also creating your, your sphere. Like, who do you attract around you? Um, what kind of clients do you attract? I think the paintings a lot of the times dictate that too. You know, mm -hmm. at a certain point I did have, I stopped, I wanted to, I want to attract different clientele. This is tricky, but I, I want my paintings to attract a different clientele now. Mm -hmm. So, and, and Will was saying the other night, to, we were talking about paintings that are kind of museum worthy are harder to sell to people who just want something hanging above their, <laughs> their, their, their sofa. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, how do you make a painting that looks like it, it wants to be somewhere more than maybe just um, in someone's apartment, right? Well, it's like one of my friends used to say, no one wants to hang your neuroses on their wall. 
Which is so true. I mean, and that's what we want to paint, right? We want to paint that sort of thing. Museums will take it, but your average art patron, mm-hmm. you know, they, they want aspirational art, something they aspire to or something beautiful, you know? Yes, it's so true. <laughs> so trying I have to no get... interest in that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, just trying to figure out like... Um, how to yeah just let the paintings kind of dictate what they want who they want into their sphere i know that sounds really maybe out there but i've been thinking about that a lot lately no i like it kind of anthropomorphizing a painting like it's attracting a certain thing yeah because like- for a while i was making paintings for arcadia gallery right it was only for a year i was with them just with steve i was with steve for one year and now I'm not with him anymore. Um, but I made a certain type of picture that was perfect for Arcadia Gallery. Small, affordable, and just something you can hang above your wall. Now I'm not making pictures that would ever hang in, in uh, Arcadia Gallery. So now I'm thinking, well, where the hell are these things going to get hung? I can try to sell them to my patrons. I can try to, um, once they're done, shop them around New York galleries. But I don't know where they're going to go they're going to have to attract that, that, that client themselves and me just putting them out there and seeing what, what happens, I guess. You know how earlier you said that you were kind of along for the ride in, in your own career? Mm. Talk about it. I, I actually find that a completely fascinating concept. Because <laughs> I, I sometimes feel I feel that way about my entire life, by the way. <laughs> like, like, I'm just, I, like, like I'm just along for the, you know, I'm just along for the ride. Sometimes yes. it's a fun ride. Sometimes it's really scary and kind of more of a roller coaster. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure that any of the decisions I'm making are very, are a direct way of going from point A to point B. They're oh, like absolutely. very, circuitous way you know getting from point a to maybe point like x um in a very very way (laughs) but um, but but can you just kind of talk about where the direction you would you know i'm not like i feel like you can pick a direction but that's about it you can't control where your life goes no you really can't and i guess that's the intuitive the intuition the part in which intuition kind of does a lot for you i'm just feeling your way around that's kind of like what it feels like. You just feel like you're just feeling your way around. I'm feeling myself from one painting to, oh, I think it, I feel like it should be this. Okay. I feel like this. I feel like that. I feel like uh, I don't want it to be that color. I feel like it should be this color. Um, I don't, I feel like I don't like that person. I feel like that <laughs> gallery wouldn't work with me or I feel like I'd look dumb in that sweater. I mean, it's all intuition um, at the end of the day for me. And I think I'm just going to go with the feels. Um, it's, the be- it's the best thing to do in a painting, I think. Like, mm-hmm. I've been taking this abstract class, mm-hmm. and you learn to do that. And I think it, it to me, feels like a very valid way of mm-hmm. working, just looking and being like, I feel like that shape. Yes. So oh, absolutely. Real. It's great. Absolutely. No, I hear you. I love it. Yeah. And, um, and for so long, Marshall, I was in this, like, more dogmatic, like, no, it shouldn't be that way. You feel that, but you, it should be like this, you know. It's, that's not the right proportion, you know. Right. I wonder if, the, if, if you, you, but you both, you know, you both had your 10 years of, you know, pulling the rubber band back. Exactly. 
Right. So and now the, the feels work because you, you have a sense um, of it. And, and because you have the language and you have the structure to experiment with. And I, I think when, when I was studying, that was what I always wanted. I'm not sure I ever got there, by the way, but I always just wanted the, you know, the chops to be able to do something else with them. Like it, like, you know, it was never about learning how to paint the perfect apple. Mm-hmm. It was about being able to paint the perfect apple so that eventually I would, I, I could let myself do exactly what you're talking about right now, except mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. I think I'm just trying to do as much as you know <laughs> possible yes. while still kind of feeling like I'm maybe sort of an artist. <laughs> that, uh, but, but what you're saying, it makes mm-hmm. total sense. And it actually makes me really like, like it makes me feel like there's hope for me too. Like, mm, Tina, I'm glad. <laughs> I know. Well, we all need a little bit of hope. I know I certainly do. A lot of hope, actually. And actually, that the manifestation part of it is, um, I think, when you paint, you know, you can imagine things. Well, maybe in the painting, but you can also imagine scenarios in which the painting would be existing. Do you ever do that? Fantasize about like where the painting would be or where it might go like well that's like uh vince's like three stages of narrative right i think that mm-hmm. third one is what it does in the world and where it is mm-hmm. right uh, you know what's crazy is that my fantasies which never don't, don't really come to pass is just to be able to keep all my stuff in a sketchbook uh like and not take the book apart and then maybe yes. put it on the shelf like like like, like i never think about where this painting is gonna go mm-hmm. i think about uh, in some in some version of life, I would be able to just keep things in a book and keep the book on a shelf, and maybe oh not gosh. have anyone see it. I'm, I, that sounds terrible. Forget no, it. No, but that's beautiful I, because I, I now want the editor to take it out. No, but it's like a a hidden treasure. You know, it's like um, a hidden a hidden gem in that way. Um, it's the I, best. My favorite art story of all time is. Uh, Salinger after he'd written Catcher in the Rye and then did a uh, did Franny and Zooey and no one really liked his last book whatever you know and he oh, just yeah. didn't want to hear it anymore and he just wrote in his cabin in Vermont and stopped filed him away in file cabinets as a pretty young man just like fuck this I'm just writing yes. <laughs> I love it so he's just writing for himself at that point you know and you just put it you put it you make it and then you put it away it would be such a true expression, you know, it whether really whether people like it or not, it would be very valid. That's, that's artistic freedom right there. So it would be artistic freedom, but then there's a part of me that's kind of like, what an asshole. Like he mm. wrote these incredibly beautiful things and for years didn't show them to anyone. I, I've, I've, I have a friend, by the way, mm. who just showed up in front of Salinger's door one day and just like sat there until Salinger came out and talked to him. <laughs> it's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm not moving. Like I'm just not going anywhere. Wow. Uh, so I'll, I'll be here as long as it takes because he wanted to talk about what Salinger was writing at the moment. Amazing. Uh, wow, that's that's some dedication right there. That's, that's some crazy stalking right there. <laughs> yeah, and crazy stalking, exactly. Otherwise known as dedication. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Colleen, I have a question because I'm thinking about that. What mm. you just said, you said an awful lot right there. And like um, paintings attracting people, sort of like a, a bug light or something. And mm-hmm. maybe... Um, you had those those paintings you were doing for that gallery and and you switched it up and did you are you looking for a different um community in some ways like did the people like i wonder if 
we're supposed to like the people who like our paintings. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like there's a community within that, like mm -hmm. people who will tolerate a little more expression or your indulge yeah. your creative impulses. Is that what you're pulling Ab towards? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say that, you know, um, an artist, I, I mean, not all artists, but I, I do think that artists have phases or stages and some clients prefer earlier stages like, oh, I, I prefer Picasso's blue period or whatever instead of his uh, later, more abstract work. Um, so I, I think that when the painting changes, it definitely attracts different clients and different admirers into its sphere mm -hmm. um so i don't know i mean but i do think that being open to that maybe can help me to widen my my collector base mm. by not confining myself into always the same thing but to try to change a little bit to see if maybe i'll attract a what you know wider client based of clientele one thing that i i feel lucky and personally was I had got teaching jobs early that made me stable mm -hmm. and I realized I could just paint whatever sort of I wanted to in the studio and it was interesting like I've always liked people who if I get to meet them and actually become friends with a lot of them, like who buy my work like it's a weird thing it's just mm -hmm. like my own just impulses whatever they are attract people that feel like friends to me absolutely you know? like kindred spirits yeah absolutely I, I i definitely i think that that can even be um you can explain a lot of instagram's algorithms to some extent to like when you post you know like people who like you on instagram and follow your stuff i mean there, there's got to be some kind of like camaraderie there or else they wouldn't follow you <laughs> you know yeah. I think that's probably very true yeah absolutely. it's just this thing people like jive with your thing or some people just don't you know right so, so colleen do, do you feel like because you're teaching a very very structured approach like you're teaching people the chops or the language mm -hmm. and then in your own studio right now you're doing something based on that that's completely different do you, do you ever talk mm -hmm. to your students about that uh, yeah i mean i think that everything they learn in terms of the just the technical mapping of proportion and, and rendering and value can be used in such a broad way that I, I basically trying to just because they I think they know a lot of my students know that a lot of the work I'm doing now is quite different. Well, a lot of the work I'm doing now is not done from life. That's that's one obvious difference, right? Mm -hmm. They're working from life. Not working from life you know i'm working from photography um which i'm very open about but i'm applying Colleen, a lot we're, of yeah. <laughs> we're not going to judge you on this podcast for i know yeah exactly but <laughs> no i know i oh know my God, shocking you did not some do, people do would <laughs> some people would but i know you guys won't um, <laughs> but so um but i think what's interesting is that whatever your reference if you have the tools to figure out like how to draw something well, it's going to be a lot more manageable for you to know when to change even parts of a photographic uh, uh, proportional scheme, right? Mm -hmm. You've drawn from life for so many years, you know, you're going to be like, oh, okay, 
that femur just looks a little too short here, even in the photo, maybe there was distortion or something. You can, you'll be able, your eye just adjusts to the, to the way things would naturally kind of flow with the human, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're concerned, if you're going to be a figurative painter, I, I don't, if, if people are going to go to GCA and they're not going to make figures, that's fine. Maybe still life painting or, um, or landscape painting. But my structure class is definitely geared more towards confidence as a figurative painter. Um, and, yeah. and, and how do you feel about, you know, I mean, because there's a place in the art world for people with chops, but what do you say, you know, what do you think happens to all of these, you know, these students graduate with just an enormous amount of skill. How many of them stick with it? How many of them, like you, go and explore different things? How many of them just paint incredibly gorgeous still lives for forever? Uh, um, I mean, I think that, gosh, I, I, I've just seeing so many people come through the GCA, um, and they're all doing their own little thing. You know, some people stick around um, and and uh, maybe get a gallery. Some some people st not in New York, but um, maybe a gallery somewhere else, Collins gallery, Arcadia gallery. I'm just thinking about all, how many galleries would sell an atelier trained artist paint, um, work Arcadia Collins gallery. <laughs> it's getting slim pickings now. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I guess a few of them, like, 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 I feel like Herschel and Adler sort of changed directions. Yeah. Uh, like, like they probably wouldn't anymore forum. Uh, yeah, forum. I don't even know if forum would. I yeah, mean, no, 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 you're the right. The thing is, it's such slim pickings for atelier trained art artists to actually have a gallery that's a, a notable gallery. Um, that I, I feel concerned. I feel deep concern for um, for atelier trained painters. And and although I'm teaching them how to draw the figure very well, I have no idea where uh, they're going to use that. I, I mean, I actually feel like so. You're right. As in, like, I feel like if anything, there's probably less galleries showing that work than mm -hmm. there used to be, and there were never very many. But on the other hand, between I don't know social media mm -hmm. uh, and all that stuff, it's easier. For, there is a demand yes. for you know there is a demand for people who can just make something really really beautiful. Uh, and Absolutely. right now, there's kind of more of a way to connect directly with the artists. And honestly, galleries are just kind of really struggling these days anyway. They are. Even, even this is another. Yes, no, Athena, you're definitely right that social media um, is playing a different, another role here in that. Like the gatekeepers are changing, which is. Yes. Like and Instagram's changing that a lot. I feel like we, yeah, we, we, we brought that up. Marshall, do you remember that very drunken episode where, <laughs> uh, was it Jonathan Levine, where oh, we were God. like, the gatekeepers are changing, and I don't know, and then he drank like half a bottle of whiskey. And <laughs> then we got kicked out of the Art Students League. Then he, uh, then he came to my apartment and drank more whiskey. <laughs> oh, my God. Sounds like a classic night. Um, it was, I mean, I was like nine months pregnant, but there's some point where he was, you know, just sitting there and he was, I mean, I think he just, he told us his gallery was closing, mm. but maybe he hadn't made the general announcement yet. Mm. So maybe he just felt like he had nothing to lose, but he was just looking at us and being like, how are you going to pay the rent motherfuckers? Yeah. Like, like what makes you feel entitled to be able to make a living doing this? And I was like, mm -hmm. I don't know, but I mean, same thing that makes you feel entitled to make a living doing anything, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the stress. Oh, my God, the stress on galleries, you know.
to move that product. I feel like in a way it's actually harder to be like, we assume that if we get a gallery or we used to assume that our lives would just be solved or if, if it was yeah. not enough gallery, et cetera. And now I feel like the artist just like our careers will, will outlast most of the places that we work with. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe just try to build your own thing as much as you can. Yeah. My whole thing right now, Dina, I know you, you, um, you understand this, but building, um, the, an artist, whether they're with rep, whether they're represented by a gallery or not, should build their own brand. You know, build their own brand, build who you are, like, and get people into who you are and what you do, and and uh, and share share what you do. And I think that that is is huge. It's funny because I I always think of you as someone who has that effortlessly. Like, like, so I kind of, I hate the word brand, but like, I know I what you're talking about. Too, yeah, I, I know, I know. It's because <laughs> the, the gallery being the gatekeeper wants to kind of, um, uh, uh, take, um, take that artist identity and use it to make money. Right. And, and, you know, in a way, like all three of us are the lucky ones where galleries will work with us, you know, the whatever five galleries dealing with that kind of, you know, work yeah. are, are willing to work with us. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure how long they, you know, they're having a hard time too. Um, yes. And I'm not sure how long the whole system is going to last. And if it doesn't last, then what comes next? Yes. What does come next? I think that's, it's really interesting. Um, and whatever comes next, I'm not sure it's, I feel like it almost has to be better than what's around right now. You know? Yes, for sure. Like, like this hasn't been a good system. There's a feeling of change, I think, now more than ever in terms of the arts and how the arts are going to survive going forward, meaning artists, galleries, the whole, the whole thing. Um, so thank God for Instagram because artists can sell their work, um, probably you know, uh, not at very high prices, but you can sell your work on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. you can sell your brand on Instagram. Um, you can share with the world what you're doing. And, uh, that's a huge, huge boon for artists right now. So thank God for it. Yeah. I mean, and in a way, Instagram's Instagram algorithm is a gatekeeper, which is also, you know, like, yeah. like, like, which yeah. isn't great. Right. But it's also, I feel like it's almost easier to negotiate with an artificial intelligence gatekeeper mm-hmm. than it was to, I don't know how many grants that you've applied to, but I've applied to a lot of grants. Uh, and I've I stopped rejected. at a certain point. I just stopped. I got rejected from all of them. <laughs> like, like, like I have never gotten a single grant. And I, I don't think I have either, actually. Uh, yeah. I, I, I got rejected from the Elizabeth Greenshields Foundation grant. Same like with me. Five, but yeah, but I kept applying every few years oh, and I got rejected like five times. And I think my sister, who's a painter, got, you know, she got it like two or three times. And I was like, you know what? I think they just- she share got- some of that money with you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll split it with you, sis. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, maybe there's only room for one Brodsky in there. Uh, but yeah. I've applied to a lot of other grants too and have gotten rejected from all of those as well <laughs> until I eventually stopped, you know, stopped applying. Uh, but I was like, okay, like mm-hmm. those geek- gatekeepers, like I can't, maybe I can't negotiate with them. And like, you know, the people where like maybe my writing is just that bad, which, which is a possibility. <laughs> Isn't the writing for Greece like literally a paragraph? I think I remember applying and it was, it was like just like the smallest little space that well, you maybe, could write well, in. But, 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 but apparently the paragraph I wrote must have been completely <laughs> unreasonable. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, rejected from 
almost all the grants I applied for throughout my my um, period of study. And then I, I think it was just at a certain point I said, no, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Um, Cause I, you know, I'm thinking about now, for example, I have like um, a portrait commission from someone off the internet and uh, it's, it's working out. Like if, Hey, if people can reach me, if people can email me, I'll paint a painting for you, you know? And let's hope that people will just keep reaching out. I mean, that's the feeling that I have now. And I think they will. And I think you're probably at the point of your career where, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm guessing this just because we're kind of the same age where I always like for years, every time I sell a painting or just, you know, make any money doing anything painting related, I would feel like it's a miracle. Like, as like, oh, oh, I my, know. and I would feel like it might be the last time this happens. I better. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and, and right now I'm, you know, I'm not feeling more confident as a painter, but I'm maybe feeling a little bit more confident as just like a grown up. It's like, okay, mm. I, I will probably be able to make some sort of living. Like, mm -hmm. and, and even if I don't know, like, like plan A of making a living or just plan a plan A of living a life if it isn't going to work out. There's all, if there's going to be a, like, as long as everyone is healthy, as yeah, long absolutely. as there's no tragedy, mm -hmm. like real tragedy in my life, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll be able to pay next month's rent and the rent, absolutely. you know, and the month after and the month after. And I think I've just, Keep I going. think that's why I hang out with you. Cause you have grown up confidence. I have none. <laughs> <laughs> I have plenty of painter confidence, but no grown up. <laughs> uh, well, maybe maybe we can trade. You know, like like you can inject exactly. a dose of painter confidence into my eyeball or something. You know, how would we deliver it? <laughs> I'm always like every every. It's like how is this still working? Like I'm surviving. Like how is this working? Like yes. I guess in a way, I never expected it to. In the fact that it does consistently mm -hmm. blows my mind it's just like it always felt like okay one more year and i'll get a real job one more year and i'll get a real job and i'm still doing that you know? i'm sure every every painter has probably felt that exact same <laughs> feeling you know? yeah exactly <laughs> but that, that i do fantasize about a real job too like i'll be yeah. at like starbucks and stuff and be like, that that steady income <laughs> like that looks so nice to me just chatting with your friends and like making a coffee. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally hear you. I Marshall, know. you don't even like making coffee that much. Like, <laughs> like, like you'd probably suck as a barista. <laughs> I did. I did it for a couple of months down on Wall Street. Actually, I did suck at it. It was. It was. It wasn't easy. Um, I got. Re I actually got rejected from a, a Starbucks job when I got out of grad school and I started, you know, I moved back in with my parents as 24 and, you know, they were like, well, you got to get a job. And so I started applying. I started applying for teaching positions of which there were none and no one wanted to hire, you know, a 24 year old. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was like, well, I just need a job that makes some sort of money. And I started applying for like, you know, Ben and Jerry's and um, it wasn't Ben and Jerry's, Emac and Bolios. That was the Boston, you know, uh, the ice cream store chain. And so Starbucks and I got rejected from those two. Uh, um, <laughs> that sucks. But they were right. I was underqualified. Like no, no, nothing in life qualified me to, you know, make make a good good latte. <laughs> there is an art to coffee making. There's no doubt. Oh my god, foaming that milk at the right temperature and doing all that. 
it's intimidating what stuff. It, uh, what, what was, you know, you, you did a lot of kind of random and, you know, possibly bizarre things for money. What was the strangest of them? Like, like is it you did to support yourself and be able to kind of spend your time learning this crazy, beautiful and practical skill? Um, strangest. Hmm. Oh my God. I'm gonna have to think about that. Um, Oh, let's see. I think it was all pretty mundane, like bartending stuff, like tending, catering, nothing really strange. Where did you bartend in the city? Um, yeah, in the city. Uh, well, it was, it was more bartending private events. Okay. Whether it was like someone's little cocktail hour or like they just need someone to like man the bar, but usually in, in people's homes in like mm. uh, down in Tribeca or up on Park Avenue. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, I, I once had a job in Amsterdam where I was um, responsible for sorting bad marijuana from good marijuana and good hallucinogenic oh mushrooms God, from bad hallucinogenic mushrooms. Like, <laughs> oh. and, and by bad, I just mean like moldy, like, you know, stuff that could wow, not, Dina, that's not out go there. into the store. <laughs> Uh, um, I wish I had a, a strange um, experience like that to, to, to tell you guys about, but I'd have to think about it. I don't know. So Colleen, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, you went from sort of like, like we were talking, uh, you know, probably seven days a week, pedal to the metal painting every day. And now I gather you're, it's about, it's like two days a week. Do yeah. you? Two days a week. Is there something to be gained from that, that break in between? Do you feel fresher with that or do you just, or do you feel frustrated with not having enough time? Where, where are you at with that? That's a great question. Cause it, um, with motherhood, um, there's so much sacrifice involved. Um, you can't paint every day. At least I can't. Um, and there is perspective gained through the time away from the painting. Mm-hmm there is a lot of perspective gained. So I would say that although I have two days to paint, um, I'm painting more efficiently now than I've ever painted. Mm. There's less second guessing. There's less time to change stuff that you don't really actually to change. Right? So superfluous, just hacking away at it. Um, it's just two days, fresh application of paint, leave. Then and a rumination period of, of working, you know, being with my kids and being at home and thinking about, okay, what's the next move? Like, where are these paintings going to go? Who are you going to email? Um, how are you going to promote them? So the rumination of like how to get the PR end, how are you going to photograph the paintings? How are you going to finish the paintings? What's the look of the painting? All of that is the thought um, process between the painting sessions. So when the painting session comes, I've noticed it's very, very fast, efficient, and to the point, and I just leave. So I would say it's actually working out better than before I had kids when I had endless time at the studio. I destroyed so many paintings. Oh my God, you destroyed away at them. <laughs> Yes. And so um, hacking away at them, I had stacks and stacks of bad paintings that I um, sanded and painted over um, multiple times. Multiple times. So... Then I finally started getting better and I started having less time at the studio and I started painting better with less time. And I was painting actually over old paintings. It was weird. Mm. Um, so a lot of, like many of the paintings on my Instagram accounts are all like painted over old paintings. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I, I have 
seven days a week I'm painting. And mm-hmm. so much of it is just half bored, listening to podcasts, drinking beer. It's like, it's <laughs> that not amazing the though. most efficient <laughs> way of working yeah, at it all. Sounds great. <laughs> it, listen, it is great, but there's not... The painting really suffers because of it. Oh, my God. Wait, wait, oh, but wait, Marshall, so you're listening to podcasts anyway. You just don't listen to this one. No, I never <laughs> listen to this one, but I do listen to it. It's, it's books, podcasts, more interested in what I'm listening to than my paintings, for sure. And then beer probably by five, and then just start drinking beer. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, I just love to be able to, like, have that time, though, to, like, drink <laughs> a beer and, like, just kind of chill out at the studio and just dabble. A little it's, bit in there but yeah I, and also having a system i feel like i, I finally learned a system um a, like, that works so now i just apply the system that's oh. how i'm making big paintings um Could you tell us I'm a making. little bit about that is it like a in process you mean like it's yeah it's so simple it, like it's gonna sound like like no, baby Colleen, stuff. please tell us tell us <laughs> imagine like Yes. It's the secret of Colleen Berry. No, but because uh, I, have to know. <laughs> at a certain point, I realized if you make a small painting successfully, all you got to do is get a high-res version, a photograph of that painting and blow it up whatever size you want. Right? Oh, okay. So now my, my basic system is I make a small painting. I figure out the composition, do all that. Um, and then I just blow it up. To whatever size I want, I prepare the canvas and I just, that's it, transfer it. And then I just start painting from my reference. Wow. So there's alterations that go on, intuitive alterations in the proportion. And, um, and it's not just pure representational painting in that, like, I'm just copying what I see. I'm definitely altering a lot, simplifying and abstracting and stuff like that. Um, and I'm also really bad at, like, copying color, one-to-one color. So, like... I filter color out in my own weird way. So like I did a green painting. Now I'm doing like um, a different co- like purple and yellow type palette that's just kind of coming out of my head. So I don't, when I have a photographic reference, I, I very rarely like just copy the colors of the photograph. Um, well, you talked about um, in Italy, learning to layer up paintings using grisaille and stuff like that. That is one of my favorite like topics like process do you do you work in series of glazes or is it just grisaille and then kind of painting directly over top of that what do you for a while it was painting grisaille and then doing like a uh like a eboshi grisaille kind of like a sketchy grisaille um where i i really key it high right you don't want like a dark grisaille or else the painting will just get darker so a high keyed valued grisaille um, I started like that for a good, I don't know, five years of painting. But now what I do is I do an eboche, right? Which is a French word for, for I think it's a French word that means um, first try or first attempt. I, so I, always, I, I never knew how to pronounce it. I used to pronounce it eboche, which is yeah, probably that, not the right way to do it. Because it has an E at the end, yeah. Well, I, I say eboche. I don't even know if that's right. Um, I should probably take, check that with uh, with a French Person. Um, but uh, the eboche um, allows me to do a rapid first pass, and all I do is I drop the chroma of that first pass, like mm-hmm. as I would. And then the second pass, I do a full, usually a full 
second opaque layer that has interspersed glazed areas and scumbled areas. So the, the painting is essentially two layers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Because That's the thing great. is, if the abosh is done very well, you don't want to paint over it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to do the abosh sketchy and good enough that in case there's areas where it will be exposed, I don't have to go back and fuss with it. But then other areas that don't have enough depth, I'll glaze and scumble. That's what I learned from the old masters was like how to get this interaction between the layers where one layer does one thing, a second layer does another, and then you have the meeting in this vibratory way. Right. That's um, so great. So we'll see. I mean, I mean, that's what I'm trying to figure out is how to do that, but I want the paint to look spontaneous and not overly labored and not overly, um, uh, uh, fussed with. Right. So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's still a fresh application at the end of the day. It doesn't look, you know, that old mastery painting that looks overly glazed, overly smooth. It's not going to have that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all old master paintings look that way. Um, but sometimes when we glaze, it can get like, like overly glazing, overly glazed paintings kind of have a brown dead quality. Yeah, totally. So I'm trying so to you paint freshness. Yeah. I think that is such a cool process. So basically, let me recap. It it is a grisaille first. Yeah. Um, for, like like there's a you know the mother and child that I did recently. I haven't even um, posted the whole thing on my Instagram. It's just it's, but it's a it's a greenish mother and child. Yes. Well, that was the grisaille. It was like a green grisaille, and I was supposed to color paint color on top, but then. I realized that it looked very interesting to me left without conventional color because it reminded me of all the ultrasounds that I saw my baby through when she mm. was in belly. There was this weird overlap between the way I was making that image and all the images I had seen of her from the tiny little blob of cells to like a full grown baby in the womb that so I was like, okay, you know what? This let's not conventionally colorize that. So that painting is basically a grisaille. Mm. Um, but it works out to look like a finished painting because I the, the values look strong enough at a, as a distance and I, I added yellow and red in weird areas. Um, so yes, I'm, I employ that method, but if, I, if I'm not doing a grisaille, I'm doing an eboche that's a kind of a low chroma eboche. Okay. Um, yeah. I would, hmm. I would actually, when things open back up again, if they ever will, I, I, I would love to do a studio visit. I'm actually looking at like your painting wall behind you. And I was like, oh my God, I would oh love, to, I would love to see it in person. Oh and, my God. You're more than welcome, Dina. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, let's, um, but I, the pop-up show is going to happen hopefully next fall. So, um, if all goes well and there's a vaccine and like, not, there'll, and, there'll, there'll be a vaccine uh, yeah and the, and the, the, the three of us will be like on the you know we'll be the last people to get it because we're like healthy <laughs> and don't you know healthy reasonably totally. young and don't work in healthcare. but yeah. that doesn't even matter as long as the people who are actually fragile get it um i i, I will be at your solo show the, or your well, two, the two-person show right yes it's my husband, husband and i will st john and i are doing the yeah two-person um and so like a two-person solo show right exactly yes and the space that we're having the show in, um, have you guys heard of Parasol Projects? Uh, no. Pop-up shows, 
uh, agency um, in New York. Uh, we uh, hope actually still be around in a year, in less than a year, <laughs> because so many you know uh, uh, companies and and um, store owners are closing. So we don't know. Hopefully, they'll still be um, there. But it's on the Bowery, and and there's access to the street. So there's like big doors that open up. So we're hoping that like there'll be a lot of ventilation, and and it won't be a cramped gallery. Mm. It's a storefront. Hi. So. I am so looking forward to that and just being able to go to openings and being able to see people in person. I know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, Same here. I'm, I'm, I'm dying for that. I really am these and, days. And I think I've realized that that's what I miss most. Like, I don't care if I never go to another restaurant again, but being able yes. to just hang out with friends without being afraid of, you know, them infecting you with something or you infecting them with something or whatever, just without the, anxiety and paranoia of the mm, last few no, months that, or having to make excuses like I saw this person in real life mm -hmm. but you know we were socially distanced and wearing masks and you know like oh uh, I hear you uh, um, but yeah um, I would love to be able to even even recording these in real life like this is good like, mm -hmm. like I'm happy to be able to talk to you, but you know, uh, um, if we ever do this again, let's do it in person with a bottle of yes. wine. <laughs> I would love that, Dina. I would love that. And we could, we could, we I could, drool, that too. We, we could drool all over our equipment and, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> For everyone who's listening, who's kind of a young artist mm -hmm. or, you know, who's trying to learn maybe some of the skills that you've learned or going out into this art world, which is always a bizarre place and is now even more so, uh, what advice would you have for them? I guess that uh, wherever you go, you take yourself with you, right? So whatever road you go down, whether it's an atelier road or you go to college or you apprentice with someone in a one-on-one -on -one setting um, with COVID, I don't know if that's going to happen now, but um, you take yourself with you. And in the end, I think a, person's determination and will um, creates their own outcome in whatever situation they're in, right? So you, an artist, in, wherever you are, it's kind of in your own hands what you do with your own, what, how, how far you push yourself in, is, is really up to you. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I do think that uh, you've got you've got the power to push through and push yourself, and you have control over that. So don't forget it. Don't blame institutions. Don't blame. Oh well, I didn't get this, and they got that. The blame game is is kind of a a lost road. Find your own kind of in an Emerson type of way, your own confidence, self-reliance to figure it out, to do what you got to do to make it and whatever, whatever making it means to you, right? So I guess that's kind of a little bit confusing, but I would say self-reliance and, and believing in yourself and having confidence in yourself is really the way to go wherever you are. No, Colleen, that's, that's perfect, and it's really beautiful. <laughs> I feel like a self-help guru, <laughs> but it's really true because I, I think that that's pretty much the only thing I've ever had to hang on to to become a painter and and stick with it. Hey, Colleen, how old are you? Are you thirty-nine? 
Yes, I am. Yeah, okay, well, so, well, so am I, all right? <laughs> so, okay, so the reason I bring this up is not yes. to, you know, call out your age on you no, know, no, podcasts. No, totally. but, but um, mm. someone recently sent me, got some sort of like astrological chart type thing where like each year was corresponding to a period of your of, of your life. And I, I don't believe in these things at all, right? Um, like, and, and, and in fact, anytime someone even mentions astrology, my first reaction is like, oh, geez, you know, like not, not you too. But, um, for, you know, the early years are like, you know, find, you know, finding your language, finding the ability to move through space, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the one that stuck with me is right before my 39th birthday. It said, um, finding yourself in the system of wise men or like finding your place in the system of wise men. This is also in Russian, so I'm translating it badly. Uh, but, but I feel that that's a little bit of what you sound like or where you're at, you found your place in the system, you know, the system of wisdom, the system of, Absolutely. you know, just wisdom to pay, you know, to learn wisdom, to pass on. And it sounds like, and I, I don't know, but who knows, maybe you've been here way before this year, <laughs> uh, that, um, but, but whatever it is, it sounds like you're deeply in place. Oh, thank you, Dina. Hopefully I hope so. Like, you know, yeah, you I know have enough knowledge to pass on. I don't know. I, I know that I'm, that, no, it was beautiful. And I, I do feel in it, you know, steeped in it, steeped in, try, in trying. That's it. That's all you can do, right? Yeah, like put in your time and you, you did your thing with the rubber band. And now I think maybe it's allowed to fly through space. It's allowed to snap because you're in place and kind of like the, you know, in, in the system of wisdom, whatever that is. Dina, I, I totally agree. So... Thank you for, for saying that because it's really true. Oh, God. And thank you so much for being here and actually taking some of your precious studio time to record of this course. podcast. Of course. My pleasure. Well, thank God, you. This guys. Thank you, Mark. Oh, yeah. No, it was you a pleasure talking to you guys. Love talking to you. Love your work. And uh, feel honored to have you as a Okay, guest. cool. Thank, thanks, guys. And uh, we'll talk soon or, and see each other soon, hopefully. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Art Grind podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind and we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. 4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.